0: Psychologists and sociologists have discovered through a number of different uh, studies and observations that few things are more important to a human being than to be seen. You might remember if you were here for our Kingdom Parenting uh, series, or Kingdom Parenting message in our Kingdom Family series, the opening to that message, I, I talked about playing peekaboo. And the most important part comes after you say peekaboo. I see you. I see you. And, and we talked about how important it is for babies to receive the loving gaze of their parents. Toddlers need attention. If you've ever had a toddler in your life, you know that's the case. Developing kids and teenagers need to know that you see them. And those conversations where you can say, not only I see you, but I see in you something special. You have what it takes and as adults we never really outgrow this that's why as one of our core values you know is this idea of leaving a legacy of faith that we would intentionally steward our resources and our influence to transmit faith from one generation to another. That's why we invest so much at Linwood into Kids Way, into Linwood Student Ministries, into Seniors on the Go, so that every stage of life, people have those around them that say, I see you, you matter, you matter to me, you matter to us. Our spouses, our adult friends, our inner circle, we all have this hardwired need to see and to be seen. And that's why fellowship is so important. And it's important in these concentric circles that I've shared before, that that you have fellowship with God in that one-on-one relationship. You spend time with God in His Word and in prayer, seeing God through His Word and through prayer, being seen by God through His Word and through prayer. Then with a a really small group, three or four people that you're doing life with and you're close to, a, a little bit larger small group, maybe 12 to 15 people, that you're in regular connection with. A larger group than that and then corporate worship. We need to see and be seen by multiple concentric circles of people in our lives. And that's why uh, uh, being in church in person I think is so important. We love the ability to broadcast this online and it's wonderful when you can't be here. But if you can be here, it's so important to be here. Because yes, you can see us on the other side of that camera And we can see maybe your comment or we can see that so-and-so is watching, but we can't lock eyes with you. We can't see if there's pain or there's hurt or there's something that you're celebrating. It's so important to be seen, to give and to receive attention, to see somebody's eyes light up when they see that you see them is critically important. And so I wonder, as we begin, have you ever felt invisible? In some situation or some setting in your life, have you ever felt unnoticed or unimportant or ignored? Maybe nobody's talking to you. Maybe nobody liked your Facebook post or your Instagram picture. Maybe you just feel like nobody's paying attention. You're unappreciated, unrecognized, unconsidered, or unwanted, like someone close lost interest in you suddenly. A closer relationship became distant or absent. Have you ever felt alone in a crowded room? If you're an introvert, this might not be that big a deal. Introverts love to be alone in a crowded room. I like to go to coffee shops where nobody knows me and just be there around people, but not having to interact with the people. But for a true blue extrovert, nothing could be worse than being the only person at the party that nobody's talking to. Maybe you grew up and you heard the line that children should be seen and not heard. (laughs) I heard that once or twice. It was mostly tongue-in-cheek. Mostly. Or maybe you've lost or grown distant with a spouse or a close relationship at some point, and few things are more painful than having had a regular connection with somebody, regularly seeing and being seen and then not having that. It's perhaps the deepest pain we can know. And so now I wanna take this one step further and I wanna ask, have you ever felt that way with God? Have you ever felt that distance from God? Like he was absent, he didn't see you, he didn't know you. Maybe it felt like he lost interest in you or had abandoned you. We find story after story through scripture Where this is the case, where human beings have felt this way, we're reading in several of my groups, we're reading uh, the Old Testament tract number four in our banding together. We're reading through the story of Job, where we have insight into the situation that Job is in that Job does not have, and he feels totally alone and abandoned and rejected by God, and he has no idea why. And he has some helpful friends that are there to say, well, surely you've sinned, Job. Just confess your sin, repent of it, come back to God, and everything will be fine. But Job didn't sin. And he feels that separation. He feels that lostness and the aloneness. The prophets went through this over and over. Christian leaders have gone through this. Theologians, mystics, regular, common, ordinary people have all gone through this experience. John of the Cross, who was sainted by the Catholic Church, coined the phrase, the dark night of the soul. What a powerful phrase to encapsulate this experience of feeling alone and distant from God. The psalmists probe this concern. John of the Cross obviously felt it, or he couldn't have had the supernatural insight to put that phrase to it. Even a saint like Mother Teresa, few people have ever had the acclaim for their outward focus, their willingness to serve sacrificially day in, day out for decades. She went through a multiple year season of feeling like God had completely abandoned her. It's in her journals. It's in her letters that she wrote to other people. And I know personally, my worst season (laughs) The worst season of my life, when I was deep in depression, in late 2016, early 2017, there was despair. I felt totally alone. I felt totally abandoned by God. I think one of my saving graces was that when I was at my worst, my wife was at her best. And she leaned in with fierce loyalty and commitment to me, And it was her that suggested I go to a one-week silent retreat I'd been talking about. And that, that is where the turning point came in my story, (laughs) where I became powerfully aware of God's presence for the first time in a long time, that Christ was and is the constant, that he had never lost interest in me, he had never drifted from me, he had never stopped looking in my direction, that He was with me in that moment, that He cared more than I could possibly imagine. And I've never doubted it since. Now, much of what I've read seems to indicate that those aren't always once-in-a-lifetime experiences. Some wonderful, wonderful people have had multiple experiences like that. And I keep that in the back of my mind, and I lean into God every single day, hoping to strengthen that relationship to the point that I won't have to go through another circumstance like that. And yet, I can stand before you today, and I can tell you beyond a shadow of a doubt, and it's the message title today, God is aware of your struggle. Whatever that struggle might be, whether you're in it right now, whether you can think about a time in your past, or whether it's some point in the future, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that God is aware of your struggle, and it is so important that we know this. It's so important that we believe this to our toes, as the statement goes. It's important because so often when we are in the midst of the struggle and as the struggle continues, we can begin to doubt that. And it's interesting to me, it jumps out of the image that represents this sermon series perhaps more than any other, that God is aware of your struggle, God is aware of my struggle, God is aware of our struggle, and it happens to be absolutely true that God is aware of your struggle no matter what. It's a promise. And so while all the facts as we can perceive them may be pointing in one direction, the truth is that God is with us. God is for us. And even if our feelings tell us otherwise, He is there. It's a reality that goes beyond our perceptions and our ability to perceive. It's a truth that stands against the lies that the enemy will tell us. And I can assure you that any time you feel abandoned by God, any time you feel that God is absent, his enemy is at work and a lie is being told, even if it's right now in this moment, in this season of your life. Now, one of my favorite Old Testament stories and one of my favorite names of God comes from this story. It's the story of Hagar, and the name she gives God, El the God who sees me. It's found in Genesis 16, so if you would like to turn there in your Bible, we're gonna be camping out in this story today. We might throw a couple other scriptures in right at the end, but you can open up to this page, page 21, if you need one of our Bibles that are in the seats in front of you. And I would encourage you to follow along. If you own your Bible, (laughs) you can write some notes in here. There's some cool things that happen. This is a very significant story. And the overall context really gets established in the four chapters that precede it. In Genesis 12, 13, 14, and 15, we get introduced to a guy that we come to know as Abraham. And in chapter 12, God basically says to Abraham, get up and go to a land that I'll show you. I'm not even going to tell you what it is. Just get up and go. And Abraham did something crazy. He got up and went. (laughs) There was no real reason to do this. He had land, he had property, he had servants, he had establishment in the place that he was, but God says, go, leave that behind. Go to a place that I'll show you, and Abraham gets up and goes, and God promises that He will make Abraham into a great nation, that He will bless him, and that Abraham will be a blessing, in fact, so much so that all the peoples of all the world will be blessed through him, all nations will be blessed through him. And so, Abraham goes. And if you read through all that, and I encourage you to do so if you haven't recently, he there's this episode in Egypt, which is very fascinating, and I'm not going to get into because we'll preach a different sermon than the one I have prepared. He gets separated from his nephew, Lot. Then he has to go and rescue Lot. Like, there's all kinds of drama. This is pretty good stuff. You can make Hollywood movies out of this stuff. And right before... Genesis 15, he has an encounter with this priest of God Most High, the priest of Salem, a guy named Melchizedek. Where's Salem? Well, Salem is Jerusalem. And Melchizedek is the high priest, the priest of God Most High. This is basically Jesus visiting Abraham in the Old Testament, thousands of years before his death on a cross. And Abraham does something very fascinating. He tithes to Jesus. He gives a tenth of all the oils and this is a, there's just so much that's going on. this is all rich 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 stuff you should read your bible it's fascinating stuff and there's a new covenant renewed in genesis 15 god re- revisits abraham and he says i will be your shield and your very great reward and Abraham say yeah i've heard this one before but i need a son in order to be a nation <laughs> and god promises there will be a son there will be a son Your title and your resources and your land will not be inherited by your servant as you think. There will be a son. And that sort of sets the premise for where we're going to go in today's message. But before we dive into Genesis chapter 16, you're going to notice I've been talking about Abraham and his wife Sarah so far. But all throughout Genesis 16, you're going to see Abram and Sarai. Well, they're the same people. Sometime after this chapter, Abram's name is changed by God to Abraham, and Sarai's name is changed by God to Sarah. I know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that I am not going to get that right every single time, so I'm just going to stay consistent with Abraham and Sarah, even though it's different in your Bible, just so that we're not tripping over this the whole time, and they're the same people. It's okay. You can call me Mark, or you can call me Marcus. Either one is going to work just fine. And so with that in mind, let's read Genesis chapter 16, and let's break this down. We'll read a chunk at a time, basically, and we'll stop and we'll pause as we go through this narrative, and we'll see what we can learn from it. And so here's the story. Now, Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, but she had an Egyptian maidservant named Hagar. So she said to Abraham, the Lord has kept me from having children. Go, sleep with my maidservant. Perhaps I can build a family through her. Abraham agreed to what Sarah had said. So after Abraham had been living in Canaan ten years, Sarah, his wife, took her Egyptian maidservant Hagar and gave her to her husband to be his wife. He slept with Hagar and she conceived. And when she knew she was pregnant, she began to despise her mistress. Now, childbearing was a really big deal at this time for women. This was their main contribution to the family, to the estate, and so forth. The ability for a woman to bear children, and particularly sons, was really, really important, and Sarah could not conceive. She couldn't bear a son. She couldn't bear an heir for Abraham. And she blames God. Perhaps you noticed that in verse 2. The Lord has kept me from having children. She gives the credit to God for this problem, She feels abandoned, perhaps unseen, ignored, in a very, very painful way. And it's public, too. (laughs) It's crystal clear that Abraham wants a son. Abraham wants children. He wants heirs. And Sarah can't provide them. And so she comes up with plan B. And it's fascinating, the language, the original language here, actually seems to indicate that Abraham not just agrees but obeys Sarah which is an interesting phrase that's used here. And I wonder if some of the hurt that Sarah feels very soon isn't because Abraham agreed a little too quickly. Yeah, sure, sounds like a great idea. Now, I want to take a time out right here to address polygamy because every now and then as a pastor, I'll hear people say, well, you know, polygamy is in the Bible, so what's the big deal? Well, yeah, polygamy is in the Bible, but I can tell you two things about polygamy that are really important for you to understand. First... It's never sanctioned, it's never suggested by God, it's never commanded by God that we should do this. It's discouraged a number of times very strongly. And the second thing you need to know about polygamy or having multiple wives is that it is always a mess. There is never once that somebody goes into the practice of polygamy that it doesn't turn out very, very poorly and introduce all kinds of strife and all kinds of dysfunction in a family. And that should come as no surprise. And so this is a good time to reiterate that marriage, from the biblical sense, is one man, one woman for life. One man, one woman for life. Not one man and multiple women, not any other combination. One man, one woman for life. And we see that here. And we see the mess that comes from trying to do this in their own way. And so in verse 4, we read that Abraham went through with this. And he slept with Hagar and she conceived, which had to hurt Sarah even more because that makes it crystal clear the problem is not with Sarah. I'm sorry, the problem was not with Abraham. The problem was with Sarah because Abraham was able to conceive through another. And surprise, surprise, Hagar comes to despise Sarah. The English Standard Version says that she looks with contempt. Other translations say she looks down on Sarah. She tries to elevate herself above Sarah, above her mistress, above the one who was in charge for her. And that is, interestingly enough, that's Hagar's part in this. Don't lose sight of that. Hagar did have a part to play in this tension unfolding. Let's pick up and see what happens next. Then Sarah... Says to Abraham, You are responsible for the wrong I am suffering. Now, I can't draw a straight line between what she says in the first paragraph to what she says here, but nonetheless, I put my servant in your arms, and now that she knows she's pregnant, she despises me. May the Lord judge between you and me. Well, Abraham's not really having it. He says, Your servant is in your hands. Do with her whatever you think is best. Then Sarah mistreated Hagar, so she fled. From her. Now, we could see this conflict coming even without the tail end of verse 4. But obviously, conflict arises between Sarah and Hagar and then between Sarah and Abraham. And this is evidence, I believe, of relational dysfunction between Abraham and Sarah. There's a hierarchy in a home of this time that Abraham is at the top. Sarah is under Abraham, and then Hagar is below Sarah. And so, Abraham just washes his hands of it, says, hey, this was your idea, she's in your hands, do whatever you think is best. Unfortunately for Hagar, Sarah thinks it's best to mistreat her. Now, I think mistreat is a fairly soft term. I think beatings were involved, I think maybe starving, uh, all kinds of, it was bad enough that a pregnant woman ran into the desert. Now, I've never been a pregnant woman, but I can guess that running off into the desert is probably an act of desperation. And one of the footnotes indicates that where we find her next, on the road beside shore, indicates that she was heading south. She was heading back to Egypt. She was heading back to her homeland. So, an act of total desperation for a a single pregnant woman to be seeking to go hundreds of miles on her own, with nothing, essentially. And then, verse 7, the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. It was the spring that is beside the road to shore. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? I'm running away from my mistress, Sarah, she answered. Now, a lot has been written about the angel of the Lord here and in other places in the Old Testament. The scholars speculate a number of different things that an angel is is first and foremost a messenger, a messenger of the Lord. But there is a strong case to be made that this again is the pre-incarnate Christ coming as the angel of the Lord. Hagar is going to interact with this angel of the Lord as if this angel. Was God Himself. What is clear from the text is that this messenger, this angel of the Lord, has been sanctioned or sent by and speaks for God. And we're told that the angel of the Lord found Hagar near a spring in the desert. And that indicates to me that this angel, whether it was the pre incarnate Christ or some other messenger, was seeking Hagar, was looking for Hagar. And the interaction that takes place is not a voice from God speaking to Hagar. No, this is an interaction that takes place face to face. This is an interaction that says, I've come to you where you are. And the question is asked what are you doing? Why are you here? And we have to remember whenever God or the angel of the Lord asks a question in Scripture, it's not because they don't know the answer. Omniscience and omnipresence works that way. God knows the answer. Sarah needs to answer the question. It's part of her healing. It's part of her restoration. She says, I'm running away from my mistress, which was not something that a slave really could do at this time. And so, with that as the setting, now there's this interaction that continues between the angel of the Lord and Hagar. And here we pick up verse 9. Then the angel of the Lord told her, go back to your mistress and submit to her. Do you think that's what Hagar wanted to hear? Probably not. Then the angel added. I will so increase your descendants that they will be too numerous to count. The angel of the Lord also said to her, You are now with child, and you will have a son. You shall name him Ishmael, for the Lord has heard of your misery. He will be a wild donkey of a man. His hand will be against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. So the first thing the angel says is, Return and submit. Definitely not what Hagar wanted to hear. I personally think she had designs for a men's clothing line in mind, right? Wait for it. That's Hagar with two Gs, okay? Sorry, that is why pastoral humor sometimes comes across as an oxymoron, right? Two incompatible phrases that are smashed together. But he basically says, change your attitude towards her. Return in humility. Submit to her. Go back. Stay in it. I'm aware of your struggle, and I'm not going to remove you from your struggle. I'm not going to teleport you to Egypt. I'm going to send you back. And it might be difficult, but (laughs) you are indeed pregnant, and that's a big deal. But you're going to have a son, which is also a really big deal. Not just one son, many sons. And don't miss this. The name that the angel of the Lord gives to the son that is growing in Hagar's womb is Ishmael. Do you know what Ishmael means? I mean, God hears. God hears. So every time you see Ishmael, every time you call him in for breakfast or for lunch or for dinner, every time you give him some direction, you're going to say, God hears, come here. God hears, it's time for lunch. God hears, it's time to do your chores. God hears, God hears, God hears, God hears. Hagar is never going to forget that God hears, that God was aware of her struggle, that God knew. Now, verse 12 might not be what you would want to hear prophesied by the angel of the Lord over one of your children, a wild donkey of a man. Right? What is this language? What does this mean? That his hand will be against everyone and everyone's hand will be against him and he will live in hostility towards all his brothers. Well, that was a prophecy. And if you think about the relational context into which this child is born, the somewhat illegitimate son into this dysfunctional polygamous family, yeah, there's going to be relational strife and relational conflict. There's going to be a child of promise. The angel of the Lord knows this. And then there's going to be the child of Sarah's plan B. And so, yeah, there's going to be tension and there's going to be conflict and there's going to be strife. But one thing you're going to see in this, if you look beneath the surface, is that Ishmael will not be subjugated. He will not be a servant. He will be strong and he will be independent. And the angel of the Lord is telling Sarah that. well. Now, this chapter in this story comes to a wonderful conclusion in verse 13, that in response to this news that she has received, Hagar gives this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. That is why the well was called Be'er Lahai Roi. It is still there between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abraham a son, and Abraham gave the name Ishmael to the son she had born. Abraham was 86 years old when Hagar bore him. Ishmael. Now this name that Hagar gives to God is so profound because God has just given a name to her son, Ishmael. God hears. and. Hagar responds by naming God personally, deeply, deeply personal to her, but also now for us. You are the God who sees me. You are El Roy, El being God, Roy being sees, the God who sees me. And she adds to that, I have now seen the one who sees me, which is a difficult translation, mind you, but I think it adds some weight to this idea that she felt she had had an encounter with the living God perhaps even with the pre-incarnate Christ. We don't know if she had seen God himself through Christ or she had seen his angel, but we know that she believes she has seen God, and she believes that God sees her. And so whether that's an inner perception or an external physical, she feels seen, she feels known, she feels heard and understood, and she knows that God is with her that he notices her, that he is looking after her, that God is aware of her struggle, and God is aware of your struggle. In fact, that's our bottom line from this story. If we distill this all down into three concise statements, God is always seeing you. God always sees you. God always hears you. God is always with you, no matter what. No matter what. Now, so far in this series, we've talked about the idea that God is alive, period. He is. When he reveals himself to Moses, he reveals himself as I am. I exist eternally, forever. Week two, God is jealous. He's jealous for you. Last week, God is so much more than we can ever even hope to imagine, And so to bring that into our bottom line for this week, that living, jealous for you so much more, God is the God who sees you, is the God who hears you, is the God who is with you always. He is always aware of your struggle, despite any evidence that you might see to the contrary. Whether you feel it or not, He is with you and He sees you. He's aware of your struggle. And so, as we sort of bring this to a close, on your way out on the tables in the back are bookmarks. I like to give something tangible sometimes that relates this, that you can take with you and maybe remember this. It's simply titled, A Prayer for Those Who Struggle. And the text comes from Psalm 73. I developed this practice during A Life Without Lack as we were reading and studying that scripture I started putting a passage of Scripture in my phone at a time and I have it set to remind me of that passage of Scripture every morning at 6.30 a.m. so that I get a little buzz and I open it up and I read that. And I sometimes have it for four or five or six weeks. Sometimes somebody will come to mind that I'm going to send that to to encourage them. And this Psalm 73 verses 23 through 26 has been the passage on my phone for about the last month. And it simply says, "Nevertheless." I am continually with you, speaking to God. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. I hope you'll pick one of these up on your way out. If you know somebody who's in the throes of a struggle right now, I hope you'll pick one up for them and give that to them. You see, Jesus didn't promise we wouldn't have struggles. He promised He would be with us. In fact, the last words out of His mouth in the Gospel of Matthew, He says, Surely I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. Is He ever not there? No. He's always there. And before that, when He was with His disciples and He was teaching them about the Holy Spirit who would be coming, He actually promised that we would go through difficult times. He actually promised that we would have struggles and trials. And he's been teaching them about the Holy Spirit, and he summarizes all this, or brings it to a close, in John 16:33 he says, "I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace, Not the absence of conflict, but the presence of God in the midst of conflict. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. take courage. I have overcome the world and I." will be with you you see this world is not all there is eternity is so much more and yet he has promised he will be with us every step of the way And so our response is to reach out and to hold on to take courage I want to encourage you today if this message is hitting home if if there's a struggle in your life and maybe even a struggle where you have felt like God was absent And I want to encourage you to come down to an altar. If you come to these middle ones, somebody will come and put a hand on your shoulder. There might be more people than the pastoral staff can get to. So if you see somebody down here and you're willing to come put a hand on their shoulder and pray with them and to pray for them, then I encourage you to do that. If you would like to pray alone, go to the outside altars and have that moment. Maybe you want to come and intercede for somebody who you know is going through a difficult time. And you want to come to the altar for them as a tangible expression, that you're with them, that you're for them. And I want to encourage you to do that. And take this moment, not only to respond to God in worship, but to respond to God at an altar, to make an altar where you're seated, or if you're joining us online, to really reach out to God and to declare beyond a shadow of a doubt that He's with you, that He's aware of your struggle, that He knows, that He sees you, that He hears you, and He's with you. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for this promise and we're so thankful for the truth behind this promise. We're so thankful that you always see us. We're so thankful that you always hear us. We're so thankful that you're always with us. Forgive us for the times that we've doubted. Forgive us for the times that we've come to the conclusion that you were not with us, that you did not see us, that you did not hear us. Help us to reach out to you. Help us to go to those who we know are struggling and to bring Jesus to them, to be your hands and your feet, to sit with someone who's grieving, to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn. Whatever our response is in these moments, Lord, help us to make it, to take a step. A step towards you, a step with you in faith. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.